Turn to 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Now, he's in Ephesus, okay, across the sea. Macedonia is Athens, Philippi, Corinth. So he's writing to them from Ephesus, I want to come to Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, now they're over in Ephesus. When he first came to Corinth, they housed him, but they also had to go over to Ephesus, and they've got a church in their home. They send you their hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be a curse. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's amazing that all of the Bible is inspired. And I thought, Lord, you even wanted to write down his closing, seemingly lightweight remarks. And yet God said it's in his word. And I said, you surely don't expect me to preach it. What's there there to talk about? I see three things. He mentions his plans, and we just mentioned that briefly in verses 5 through 9, what he liked to be with them. And he mentions an astounding uh, paradox that we'll look at. But he does three things after his plans. He begins to give a commending word to those people who've had an impact. Commendable words. The second thing, he gives five imperatives in the Greek, and the imperative is the command uh, mood. When I command you, I use the imperative. And he gave five of those in verse 14. So we'll look at his five commands to them. And then, finally, we'll look at his concern 
It's a, it is a concern, and it is the greatest concern of our lives, and that is the way it closes in verse 22. If you don't love the Lord Jesus, you're under a curse, and you're headed for destruction. And so his commendations, his commands, and his concern. Let's just touch on this uh, epistle. Let me give you a summary. He's written a book to people that in chapter 1, they have fallen in love. Many are beginning to fall in love with philosophy over the cross. In chapter 2, they're impressed with worldly wisdom and not the wisdom of God. There's a, there's a segment. There's a party there that's going astray. Chapter 3, they're into party spirit. They're into church politics. Who's the best? Who's the favorite? Into the personality cult. Chapter 4, there's a bunch that are saying, if you know Christ, you ought to be reigning. You ought to be prospering. You ought to have everything going good. And Paul said, in contrast to you, I am suffering. I'm paying an immense price to make the gospel known. This church that he calls the sanctified in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, is tolerating a man to be living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother in chapter 5. And Paul says, put him out of the church. The church has got to deal with sin. The church is never without sin, but the church must deal with sin. By the way, this is a New Testament church. Would you like to join a Bible church? Go join the church of 1 Corinthians. That's the kind of church we pastor. We deal with immorality. We, we deal with people following false teachers at times, get into crazy theology. We got some people, if we let, would turn us into a political powerhouse, putting personalities over personalities. Every local church deals with this. A lot of people say, I want to be a Bible church. Well, join 1 Corinthians. Just as Bible as any church you'll ever belong to. Well, they must not have preached the word there. Well, I, I guess no. I, I guess the one that planted your church is more informed than the Apostle Paul. People coming out of paganism bring a lot of it with them. The folks that ought to know better are second and third generation Christians. But they don't get better. They tend to get pharisaical. So we've always got these tensions. We come to chapter 6. Uh, they're suing one another. Uh, so you wanted to always know who you sat next to, see if you'd see them in court. And they were sleeping with prostitutes, chapter 7. They don't know what to do with singleness or married life, chapter 8 through 10. They're fussing over Christian liberty issues. Can I eat this meat? Can I not eat that meat? Chapter 11, they didn't know the role of women in the assembly. Then they go into a discussion of communion, chapter 12, 13, and 14. There are many exalting gifts above love, and he's trying to balance them. God gave gifts, but the greater controlling motive must be love. Chapter 15, he says, there's some among you denying the resurrection of the dead. That's pretty serious. And he said, I write to inform you, Christ was raised, and if he be not raised, then you're in your sins. So if Christ was raised from the dead, there must be a resurrection for the dead, for he's the sample of it. Chapter 16, he deals with the offering he's taking for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Now he closes out. He said, I want to come and be with you. But I'm delaying my coming to you because I'm in Ephesus. 
and uh, Timothy will be appointed the pastor at Ephesus. And he said, there are great opportunities for ministry in this city. Acts 19, he's in the middle of the riot when the silversmiths want to kill him because he is removing them, getting them away from Diana, their major goddess in the city. And so they're upset. Chapter 20 of Acts, he addresses the elders of Ephesians for the last time as he goes to Jerusalem, never to come to Ephesus again, but to go to his martyrdom. But he says, I'm in Ephesus. I'd love to be with you. I want to come. I don't know when I can get there. And he says this paradoxical statement. For where I am, there is an effectual door of ministry open to me. All kinds of ministry opportunities and all kinds of adversaries. I would do it this way. Everywhere there's an opportunity, there's an obstacle to overcome. Just because there's an opportunity and an open door, God sent me here 40 years ago with Revelation 3.8. I set before you an open door. Well, that is wonderful. That was the door of opportunity. But there's been much, much adversaries to overcome, finances, problems. You know, it's like God says to the children of Israel, go inherit the promised land. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Go inherit the promise. And the promise is about a seven-foot giant that says, you're not getting this land that God promised. Wait, wait, wait. You've not read Genesis 12 where God said, this is our land? I said, no, no, Bob Dylan sent and sings that. You don't sing this. This land is not your land. Well, it's promised. That means everything will go, no, 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 no. Opportunity never eliminates adversity. My dad used to tell me as a young boy, he said, uh, if you want to do the will of God, son, the devil's against you before you ever get started. You've always got one vote against you, the devil. There are many adversaries. And uh, I see some believers are so weak-kneed, if there's a little wind that blows against them, if there's a little bit of everybody's not quite enthused about what they want to do, if it takes a little stamina, uh, Jim and I used to box a little bit, and my brother Paul wanted to be a boxer, used to work out in Berkeley. You know what ended his career? Is after they did all this stuff, you have to be able to take a punch. Boom. It's not all, oh, man, that, your form is beautiful. Get in there. Boom. And you're seeing stars. Says, man, I just want to hit a target. I don't want to be a target. A guy told me one time, he says, you're punch drunk right now. Told me his dad as a pastor. And I said, and what does that mean? He said, you've got just a few, few seconds as a fighter to determine if I go to the mat, guess what? I'm no longer a target. That's what's wonderful about the mat. But 
if I can withstand this punch, I might still yet win. And you've got about a split second to make that decision. And, and you're, you're waiting out. Go, Matt. Stand up. Go, Matt. And when you can't even see the opponents, I'm staying in. No, you better go to the mat. Just lay down. And in Christian work, and Paul, the great apostle, I've never done the work of God without the opposition against it. Not everybody is clapping for you because you want to do the will of God. Not everybody just thinks it's wonderful. Well, get over it, soldier. We're soldiers. We're in a battle. We're in a fight for the right. We're in a fight to tell the truth. We're in a fight to live morally. We're in a fight to preach the gospel. It's not for Twinkies. There's opportunity, but there's also adversity. Come on, you want to raise kids in a healthy environment. I think of our police departments and, and trying to maintain order. I think Richmond had eight killed last month. There's a gang war going between Southside Richmond and North Richmond. I, I know those places. I lived in Southside. I competed in track in North Richmond. And what everybody wants a safe neighborhood. Man, we've got some men walking the beat, risking their lives to keep it safe. So, he says, I want to come to you, but wow, uh, I'm having a great ministry here. God is working. God's doing. And he could have said, and there absolutely are no problems. Hallelujah to the Lamb. No, 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 no. You know what? I wonder if you're in the will of God if you don't have any adversities. See, there's two groups of people. If you're in the will of God, peace, peace, wonderful peace. Everything is just wonderful. Everybody just likes me because I'm doing the will of God. Paul says, I've got opportunity, and I'm living with adversity. It's a way of life. We rest in Christ. We found peace in Christ, but he said, I'll leave you like sheep among wolves. I'll leave you in a hostile world. They won't applaud you. So he says, pray for me. I want to come to you, but I'm having a ball doing ministry. And he says, I've learned to live with the adversity, but don't be afraid of it when it comes. Now, three things he's going to say. I want to tell you some people I commend, and this is what we want to look at. He mentions them by name. He tells you what they did, and you won't be quickly impressed because he doesn't mention anybody super wealthy or great inventor or doesn't mention anybody with a Ph.D. But these are the people that God wanted in his sacred record. And he tells you what they did, and then he says, and this is the way I want you to treat them. This is the way they ought to be acknowledged among you. So he first of all mentions Pastor Timothy the man that was getting beat up and didn't like it too much at Ephesus. What, who are they? Timothy, what does he do? He said in verse 10, uh, put him at ease among you, and that really means don't let him be afraid when he comes among you. I, I, I'm inclined to think that's why Apollos didn't want to come. There was so much rancor and so much confusion going on in this church. Who would want to visit? Uh, but Timothy... He said, uh, if he comes as my representative, don't let him be afraid, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. 
Don't let anyone despise him. Help him on his way. All he mentions, all he's doing, he's just doing the work of the Lord. Could someone say that about you? Whatever that is. Are you doing any aspect of the work of the Lord? Are you just used to warming a pew? And most pew warmers, what bothers me about pew warmers, they are usually the biggest critics. Because, uh, you know, um, I heard a line I grew up with that a mule can't pull and kick at the same time. Now, that's farm theology, and some of you are dense. You don't even get what I just said. You can't pull and kick at the... The most critical people at a ball game are those that not playing the game. It's the Bud Light crowd on about the fifth row. Man, he should have caught that. Hey, beer gut, you couldn't even make it on the field without CPR. But you're the critic that you know they should have caught it. They should have held it. You should have been able to do that. Beer gut, shut up. You're so out of shape. You don't know what's going on. But, oh, man, you know how they ought to play the game. Honey, bring some more potato chips and refill the coat and, and the butt. You see, you're not in the game so you can criticize the guys playing it. But he said, you be good to Timothy. He's working. He's doing something for God, just like I am. Be good to him. Now, what a way to get recorded for 2,000 years by name in the list, in the Bible. All you did is I'm just working for the Lord. Didn't say how great he was, how outstanding. Are you working for the Lord? If you are, you are to be commended. That's wonderful. Don't ever quit working for the Lord. Not until you see him face to face. Then he goes down and mentions Apollos doesn't feel led to come right then. And I don't blame you, Apollos. I wouldn't either. Uh, then he goes down and he mentions Stephanus. Uh, he baptized Stephanus, he said in chapter 1. And he was one of the first converts. And he says, he and his household have done something. The old King James said they addicted themselves to the service of the saints. Here ESV says devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And the word there for uh, devote, let, let me get it just right for you. Uh, it means they had appointed themselves to do work but it was not an official appointment. In other words, they weren't an officer in the church, deacon, elder. Uh, it seems to be they saw the work that needed to be done. And remember, they're meeting in house churches. And a house church, a, a large church would be 50 people. See, uh, we would know if you are a worker in this church if there's only 50 of us. See, some folks say, oh, I like a small church. Oh, I, I grew up in them, and we knew everybody that was a sluggard and everybody that was a worker because we were so small. What's nice when you get big, nobody knows what you're doing. And bigger churches attract all kinds of people that just want to drop out because, man, they got so much money. If they built this building, they must be loaded. They got so much stuff going, they even give you a donut. This place is booming. They're busting. You have no idea how much help we need to keep this thing going. Children's ministry alone, we can consume 20 of you today and put you to work. Just today. If you want to go to work. 
But many people are drawn to a larger ministry because you just sit back and wait till the millennium, and they'll never know. Well, boy, that'd be the wrong reason to want to belong to it. There's plenty of work to do if you want to do it. I think of uh, the Wongs, um, Ed and Bernie. Here they, over there in San Francisco for years, and when they came to us, uh, they weren't in the youth department. They had, he had retired, but, you know, I see some people never get engaged. It just seemed like within a year, their hands were in so many ministering, doing this, doing that. They just found their way. We're not here to stare. We're here to serve. What a great commendation of any of you. If you're serving in God's church, God recognizes it. And he said, if you like Stephanus, they saw something that needed to be done and weren't asked to do it. They just took it up and they got addicted. They devoted themselves to meeting the needs of the saints. What a beautiful commendation. And then he said, when Stephanus went over to Ephesus with Fortunatus and Achaicus, they came to see Paul, and I love this. They refreshed my spirit. And here's the word. Listen, see if you can get it. They brought me an anapazo. An ana is an intensifying preposition. They intensified my pause. Anapazo. It was the word Jesus said, take my yoke and I'll give you rest. And the idea is they were refreshing. Uh, do you have any saints in your life that are refreshing? That you were going through hard times, you'd want them to pay you a visit. Well, this is what these men, he said, they were saint refreshers. They could just refresh you in the Lord. You know what? You ought to ask God, help me to refresh people that are facing the adversary and doing the work of God. Could I be a saint refresher? I, I just love it. He said Titus did this for him in 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, to be a disciple, I would love it to be said, I refreshed the apostle Paul. I wasn't an apostle. It doesn't say these men were elders or deacons. It said they were known for what they did. They were addicted to ministry to the saints, and their impact on the apostle is they gave me a pause to refresh. I, I was able to rest from all the tensions at Ephesus when they were with me. Uh, in the early days of the church, uh, like any pastor, I looked forward anytime anyone to call me and go to lunch. I thought, hallelujah, they, they want to feed me. It didn't take long to find out they didn't want to feed me many times as much as they wanted to tell me how to run the church. They weren't taking me out to say, Pastor, you're doing a good job. Preach the word. I said, you know, I don't like this. And I don't like that. And I, you ought to, if you're really a man of God, you'd see we need this. And, and, we, and I just wanted to say, take your hamburger right back. I need refreshment. And all you want to tell me is more work to do. That you're unwilling to do. Because my favorite reply was, you know what? If God made you see that, maybe he's speaking to you to do it. And they say, I've got to hurry. I have an appointment. <laughs> yeah, 
They used to have people all of a sudden, you need a youth group before we had youth groups. I had a man tell me one time, he said, once you get a youth group in this church, I'll come back. I love your preaching, but if you don't have a youth group, I can't come. I said, would you like to help us start one? Oh, no, you get one going, I'll be back. Guess what? We got one going, he came back, and he stayed 30 years. Get it, and I'll be there. But somebody had to step up and do the work. Somebody had to do the work. There's a lot of folks that want the credit. There's few that want to do the work. We want to be the kind that do the work. Then he goes down and he mentions Aquila and Prisca or Priscilla. Now, which one's the husband? The husband's Aquila. Man. And Prisca, she's mentioned four times. and She seems to be the outstanding one in the couple. Seemed to be, had a profound impact on training Apollos in Acts 18. And they housed Paul for over a year when he came to Corinth. He stayed with them. They were tent makers with Paul, Jews that had, had been kicked out of Rome under Claudius in 43 AD, had fled persecution. This is an outstanding couple, and the church met in their house. You know what? We didn't build any church buildings till 313 AD. The church never met in anything but houses until then. Just think if Valley Bible met in a house, which house would we use? What we would be really, this church, I, I didn't hear all that. Uh, what would they say? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's where we built a building. We used to meet in my house. I used to do Grace School of Theology classes there, and, and I taught men there. I did a lot of teaching there. And... Uh, uh, where was I until you did that insinuated remark? That means this church would basically be broken up into about 15 to 20 smaller churches. And, and, and that you'd have an elder over every little group. And, and uh, there's something about it that if you still pay me good, I like the idea. You didn't get that. The bigger we've got, the better you treat me. But... You know what? Uh, I used to feel weird. I was in love with this church in a special way until we started running over 250. Since then, I can't stand any of you. Not really. No. You know what it was? I get my arms around the church. I knew everybody. I knew how they got saved. I knew their biography. I, 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 many times I led them to the Lord. It was so exciting. And then we just kept growing. And then as you keep growing, pretty soon I'm preaching to a sea of strangers that love the Lord, who come, and, and my role has changed. I used to think I had to know everybody. Now, I just, when I see you, I just say, hi, bro, hi, sis. Don't ask me, give me your name. You're a bro or a sis. How are you doing? See, and it's really a 1,000 miles from New Testament church where everybody knew everybody, where there's one another's, where there's body life. Oh, we know the needs. We don't have to wait for the bulletin to tell us the brother's in need. We care. We're only 50 of us. And I wouldn't be all of a sudden getting somebody, well, boy, we got some of our folks in this. Did you know that? No, there's just 50 of us. We would all know it. 
See, there's strengths, but many times churches are small and still not having that quality of fellowship. So here we go. This church was in their home. He says, I want you to do five things, five things. These are his commands, verse 14. Five of them, get it, right there. Start with verse 13. Be watchful. It's a command. Be on your guard. And he said this about many things. Be on your guard in prayer. He used it that way. This is the word he said. Could you not watch with me one hour at Gethsemane? Be watching for the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24. Be on your guard. Satan is going about as a roaring lion seeking someone. Wake up mentally. Act like you're on the wall and that you're awake and not asleep. Two, stand firm in the faith. And it literally means be established. Put your feet down. Don't yield to all the winds and the opposition. Take your stand on the truth in the faith. Do you know the faith? And he said in Ephesians 4, mature saints who have been equipped by pastor, teachers, and evangelists, and apostles, and prophets, they become mature enough that the winds of doctrine that are blowing through the church world will not move them, for they've built upon a rock. Be established. Don't run. Take your stand. He goes on to say, act like men. Now, he's not telling women to act, you know, like men. And that, this was a word that was uh, used, uh, play the man, be, be courageous, act in a manly and courageous way. Aristotle said it was the difference between fear and confidence. It was used in the papyri writings in Greek. They, one man said it this way, therefore, this is papyri, therefore do not be faint-hearted, but be courageous as a man. He's saying, be courageous. We're just, this church is going to suffer. All the churches were suffering. I never forget a line that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. One only need to read history to know that the loss of courage has always signaled the end. Once you lose your courage, it's over. You, that's what, to me, when I look at having read some on World War II, Grant is a big history buff. He's loaned me book. The Citizen Soldier, wasn't it? And that was by who? Stephen Ambrose. And I read that book of how our troops took Germany and our boys froze to death because the Germans were dug in. They were, they were, that was their homeland. They outlasted those American boys that were freezing. When you read about war, when you read about athletics, that what happens during a halftime when your team has taken a beating in the first half, that coach has to have the ability to infuse courage in those people. That's what I think exhorters are about. Can you infuse me with courage? I got a wife as quiet and precious and as calm as she is in many storms in my life. That wonderful Christian 
she, my sister Hazel would be like this. That's her boom. When I had these back surgeries, I thought I was going to resign this church because my health couldn't keep it up. I was feeling bad. I was worried about finances. I was worried about retiring, but we have enough money to live on. I was worried about my health, and I, I just, I was becoming a wreck. I was home eight weeks and for an extrovert just to stare at walls. I was becoming more and more depressed, and I never forget one day her just coming to me. She said, listen to me. Listen to me. Our God has brought us this far. Our God has kept every promise. Our God has done this. Our God has done that. And we will not starve to death. We will make it. You stop your worrying. You take on the armor. You must play the man. She, that quiet, precious little gal that I'm always telling on to make you hate me, the courage, the courage, and she infused strength in me. My sister did it. Those have been the two exhorters in my life. You need a word, because we all sheep spook easy. Leadership isn't always easy. The money's not always there. Not everybody's of one mind. There may be disunity. There may be a split working. You never know. Stand. Don't move. Play the man. That's what he's saying. Be strong. Stand up. Don't resign. Don't run. There's no armor for the Christian's back. The armor covers your heart. It doesn't cover your back. He means for you to stand. Don't tell me I've been here 40 years without storms and without problems without troubled people. Wherever there's people, there'll be problems. If you're looking for a perfect church, you'll ruin it the moment you join. There are no perfect churches, no perfect people, and there's no perfect pastors. Ask my kids. I'll cut them out of the will, though, if they talk. He goes on to say, be strong. And that doesn't mean self-sufficiency. Christians get our strength from another. So the idea is uh, let God infuse his strength in you. I can do all things through Christ who infuses his strength in me. Uh, it's wait on the Lord, and he will renew you. Avail yourself of the power that God wants to pour into you. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Ephesians 6.10. Take to yourself the whole armor of God, praying in the Spirit, wielding the sword of the Word. Be strong in God's armor and God's might. It's not you flexing your muscle. You, who are you, wimp? We don't have the strength nor the power to take on the spiritual powers that want to destroy our marriages, destroy our kids, and destroy our soul. Our power is from above. Wait in the upper room until I infuse you with power. You know what's wrong with some of you? You're powerless as teachers. You're powerless in your ministry. I talked to so many young guys that want to preach. I said, why are you accepting being a monotone, boring preacher? Why don't you hang it up and go bore somebody else? It's not a gift to bore God's people. Get some oompa. They call it chutzpah. 
Somebody said, well, I, I'm just kind of timid. You know why you're timid? You don't hang out alone with God long enough for him to infuse power and change your timid personality. Because when you get up here, friend, we're not looking for Mr. Milk Toast. We need someone that is convinced this is the word of God and that God can do what he says. God can give you conviction. God can set you aflame. Don't tell me you can't. I was the boy who did it. Thank God you didn't hear me at 15. My brother Paul said, are you sure God called you to preach? Then he said that when I was 16. Are you sure? At 17, are you sure? And Paul, you seem to have a repetitive man. Man, I can't blame God for the way you preach. It's pitiful. Older brothers aren't for compliments. At 18, I finally preached a youth rally, and heaven came down as we, in my background, talked. Heaven came down. It came up. I'll never question it again, but it took three and a half years. And I made a vow to pray three hours a day from ninth grade to the 12th grade. Guess what? The preaching was pitiful, but I was learning how to wait on him. I finally struck fire been burning 50 years later. I didn't buy this at a seminary. I didn't get this from men. Steve Fernandez told me one time, I never wanted to be a preacher until I heard you, and I saw a bush on fire, and I figured if God could make a bush burn, he could set me on fire. And he's been burning ever since. You're just as exciting as you're waiting on God to be. And the reason your classes are boring, the reason your ministry has no impact is you're not getting your strength from God. You've settled for warmed over stuff. And the fire of God has never ignited your heart. It is a life of desperate dependence, and that's why these egomaniac Rambo men never get it. God holds it for the weak that rest on him and depend on him and ask for it. It doesn't just fall out of heaven. You ask. You go to God, you must empower me. You must. He said, I got more power than you can stand. I'm just looking for someone that's sick of doing it in their own strength and will come and wait on me for my strength. We do this work in the might of God. Then he says, and by the way, be loving each other at all times. Let everything you do be done in love. Wow, what a coverall. I said, everything? See, let all that you do be done in love. Enough said. That's the command. You got to ask, was I loving when I did this, or was I just mad? He closes out, and he says something that's astounding. He's given us the people he commends, no mentions, Nothing that you think is even outstanding. Didn't say they're on radio. They had a seminar. Just workers. Workers for God. You see what God records in heaven? Not your degrees. Not your position. Do you love the work? Will you do the work? Then, he said, let me tell you five commands I want you to do. And he just rattles them off like that. But then when he closes the epistle, he says something astounding. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 
our Lord come, or our Lord is coming, Maranatha, an Aramaic phrase. But it is astounding to me uh, that simple little clothes. And uh, he says, if, no, if, if anyone is not finding their love for Christ in them, they're under a divine curse. Literally, let them be destroyed. Let them go to hell. If you want a, a contemporary, he uses this in Galatians 1. They preach another gospel, let them be anathema. Here he's saying, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. So what's our greatest problem? What's the greatest problem of the unsaved man? After all, your, all of his sins, his greatest problem is he hates the only one that can save him. He said it in Romans 5 that while we were at enmity with God, Christ came to reconcile us. And the word enmity there is active hatred. Uh, I, uh, as we're taking communion, I think the hardest thing for me to say, I, I hate to say what I'm going to say, the hardest thing I ever have to say is, according to God's word, I, I hated him at one time. You ought to just say that under your breath. Until I came to Christ, I hated him. And if you're here without Christ, the reason you're without Christ, you hate him. And you say, well, you've got to love somebody. You love yourself. Man is vying to be his own God. That's the whole warfare. Is it this God you serve, obey, and love? Or is it this God that does his desires, whatever I want to do? And when I think, I was just a kid at 14. But what was the battle? If I accept you, do I have to break up with this girl I'm going with in Rollingwood Park? Yeah, probably so. Just keep going with her, you're going to have sex, so you should break up. Well, I, that's kind of messing with my plans, Lord. Now, if we could write that in, that I could stay with her and maybe have sex in my youth, uh, maybe you and I could work a deal. I'll take a little Jesus, let me have a little sex. He says, no, 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 no. Uh, if you take me, sex will have to wait till marriage. Ooh, mm, mm. Sorry, Lord, I thought we had a deal. Uh, what, what do you mean, Lord? Well, you see, whoever loves me keeps my commandments. Now, which comes first, obedience or love? See, and you see in the book of John, he's all the time saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, I want him to say, I'll be touched in the service. He said, after all the emotion, if you love me, obey me. Well, see, I never did love him. When did any of you start obeying? That's when you started loving. Oh, back and said, oh, I've always loved Jesus. No, you haven't. You're sentimental. Jesus was nice. Jesus was this. I've always heard this. When did you start obeying Jesus? That's the only way he says, I know that you love me, is you'll do what I tell you. Love, obedience, they're both sides of the, to each different side of the coin. Love for God 
is obeying him. And what is man's great problem? He loves pleasure. He said this. He loves money. He loves sex. He loves uh, himself. He loves popularity. He's got a thousand things he loves that he bows to, but says, uh, where am I in the lineup? You're way back here, and when I'm old and gray and there's not enough in me to have party at night, I might look you up. If any man does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are under a curse and you're headed for hell, and you will die without Christ. For the greatest insult of all history is that the clay can say, I don't love the potter, and that we think we could tell the creator, potter God, you can take it or leave it. You do it my way or no way. And you said, you're the clay, I'm the potter. You're the created thing, I'm the creator. When will you yield your will, will to me? When does that happen? And then I think there's a scary thing. That's the unbelief that we came out of. I think something that scares me is at times uh, believers fall out of love with God. Uh, at least Ephesus did. The church he's writing from, where Timothy will pastor. Ephesus, man, you're a hard-working bunch. You hate false doctrine, and you're working yourself to death over there. I've only got one thing against you. Why have you fallen out of love with me? You don't love me like you did at the beginning. Our love is cooled off. Why? And matter of fact, he doesn't leave it at a why. He said, unless you repent and unless you do your first deeds over, which I would take be, uh, I was at a wedding last night. And, uh, you know, being older and realistic, I think, oh, kids, enjoy the honeymoon. It will last two days. And then it will be conflict resolution. And enjoy it. She was a beautiful bride. But Carol and I are so imp unimpressed with these beautiful weddings that end in divorce. All this money as a down payment for a divorce. One cousin's getting married another cousin's whether that's getting a divorce. And this one here that's getting the divorce, Carolyn said it was the most spectacular wedding she thinks she's ever been to. It was off the chart, a wealthy family. It was just, ah, uh, well, well, surely that keep them in love. Had nothing to do with it. By the time the cake was eaten, they were finding something to fight about. You see, you could still be married and not be in love. I got a good wife. Do you, are you crazy about her? No, I'm crazy for having her. Crazy. Mm. <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. 
Just because you say you're married doesn't mean you're in love. I know a Christian worker recently that this was the word the wife said when she filed for divorce. I still love you, but I'm just not in love with you. I respect your character. You've not done me wrong. You've not had an affair. You've been a great dad. But I, I'm just not in love. The romanticism isn't there, and the, uh, the thrill isn't there. The thrill is gone. Sing it, BB. The thrill is gone. Uh, the romance has become a rut. I'm married. I had family members. He had his bed. She had her bed, separate bedrooms. And uh, it was just platonic for 25 years. But they were married. But it would be a tragic use of words to say happily. Instead of happily married, it was miserably stuck. And guess what? Jude said, keep yourselves in the love of God. By praying, by looking for his coming, by pulling men and women out of the fire of destruction, and by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Did you know, hear me well, hear me, why would I lie to you? You've got to fight to stay in love with the only one worth your love, Christ. It's a fight. Because there's a thousand suitors for your affection. TV wants your time, and you can watch the TV and say, I don't read through the Bible every year, but I watch three hours of TV every night. Guess what you love the most? You love what you do. And, and some, one of the hard things about staying in church, I've seen people, they've, they've been Christians so long in name, but have had so little joy. Uh, life has hit them, uh, disappointments maybe, whatever, and, and, and the joy has all gone out. And uh, did you know God gets no glory from you until he fills you with joy and love for him, that you have an emotion about God? See, you can say this, uh, would you recommend God? You know, it'd be nice to try out God. He's got some wonderful attributes, and uh, I think he's really God. Yeah, what else? And I'm bored to death with him right now. I haven't known the emotion of joy about him in so long. I haven't been on my knees for so long and needed a handkerchief because my heart was melted as I thought of how he pursued me in time and has loved me. You say, I'm not emotional. I'm just right. I'm on the doctrinal side. Oh, bull. Jonathan Edwards would say it. If your religion does not affect your emotions, you have no religion. This thing wasn't made to be just to know. You know that my intellect, will, and emotions, everything about my being is affected so that I say, woe am I, I'm in the presence of Almighty. No, no, no. You don't have the emotion because you've fallen out of love. You don't have the emotion because you're quenching the spirit. You don't have the emotion because you have backslidden heart. You're wayward. You need to seek him. Give me the first love again. I want to love you like I did when I was basking in the forgiveness of my sins and the hope of heaven, and I couldn't believe that I was in the family of God. If you don't love the Lord Jesus, you're under a divine curse. 
Ephesus was removed as a church because they must have never gotten back to the first love. I say this, the greatest need in your life this morning is to answer this question, lovest thou me more than these? He said that to a fallen, would-be apostle. Some of you folks don't know what to do with fallen preachers, but you ought to read John 21 and see what Jesus did with one. He got him out, fixed him some fish next to a lake. And uh, this was the man that the last time he'd seen him wept bitterly in the night because he denied his Lord three times. And Jesus looks him up in the Lake of Galilee. He went back to his old trade. He's back to fishing again. He gave up going to the upper room. There's no future for me. And the Lord got him on the side of that lake. He said, I want to talk to you, Peter. The last time we were talking, you were telling me how loyal you would be, and you've messed up miserably. I want to ask you some questions. Number one, do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. Well, feed my sheep. Got past that. Good. Anything else, Lord? Yeah, do you love me? Lord, I just said I didn't do that. I said, feed my sheep. All right, Lord, you got me. It's over. No, no, no. One more time. Peter, do you even have the affections you claim? I've been asking you agape. You've been answering in phileo. Do you even have a friendship love for me? If you do, take care of my lambs. At this, he said, Lord, only you know. I can't even answer you anymore. Right now, Jesus is asking you, right where you are, every one of you, do you love me? Do you love me? Search your heart. Is there anything between you and I? Are there any rivals getting your time and affection? And I'm really standing in line, or am I first? Are you saying, I love you, and whatever you want me to do, whatever the assignment, feed your sheep, take care of your lambs. I love you unless you say I don't because you're God. I've been wrong before. You know what I have to say? It's hard for me, and I don't want you to pick this up from me, but I confess a fault. I'm... I'm many times hesitant to tell the Lord I love him because of the Peter story. I don't want it, I don't want it to be braggadocious, arrogant. I, I'm at the place, I love you because I can't help myself. Even on my worst day, you are God. You're wonderful. But I, I cannot pledge perfection. I cannot pledge. It's your love that really matters, but... Lord, I, I can't help myself. I, I've been conquered. I'm not great because I love you. I just can't help myself. I don't know what you call it, Lord. Whatever you call it, I want you. 
do you love me? Get to him, because until you start loving Christ, you abide under a divine curse. And if you die in that condition, hell is the place for people that don't love God. And heaven will be the eternal singing and praising of people that love Jesus and won't ever let him forget it for eternity. Father, may at the end of the day, when the epitaph is carved out for our life and our family comes to say goodbye, I'm not looking for them to put Dr. Phil Howard. I'm not looking for them to put founder of Valley Bible Church. I would that it would say a man who loved Jesus Christ more than anything else. If it could only be that, that would, that would be enough. That would be enough. We uh, ask that you work in the hearts of your people. Deliver us from our backslidings. Deliver us from our worldliness where we love things more than you, that we lose our focus. And all of a sudden, we're loving the world. We're giving our time, our body, our thoughts to everything about this world. Uh, love us, thou me, more than these. Let it ring through our heart and let us weigh, is there anything, anything that has replaced our love for Christ? Oh, we'll keep him on the list, Lord. I, I just move him down to fifth place or third place. He's just keeping him first place. May the Spirit of God search our heart and let us realize maybe the reason I'm not serving the reason I'm not having joy, the reason I feel like I'm strained, unfocused, is I've fallen out of love with my shepherd, Savior, just like Ephesus, just like a million others. Please restore that love so that we can say, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and your body, and him only shall you serve. Please, burn the idols in our heart and let us exalt Christ as Lord of lords and King of kings. In his name we pray, amen.